Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Om Tadekam Smaramastadekam Hajamaha Tadekam Jagatsakshirupam Namamaha Sadekam Nidhanam Niranam Amisham Bhavam Bodhipotam Sharanyam Rajamaha Om Shanti 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 On that alone do we meditate, that alone do we worship, to that alone the witness of the universe do we bow, to that one who is our sole eternal support, the self-existent Lord, the raft to safety across the ocean of this world, do we come for refuge? Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning to the few of you here in the temple and to those of you watching at a distance. And thanks to Preeti for that beautiful song which really expresses the a wonderful mood that we might cultivate in this difficult time. And let's face it, this is a difficult time. We are living in very difficult times indeed. And uh, of course, it, it reminds me, I once went uh, to buy a suitcase uh, for my travels, a very lightweight, small suitcase that can fit in the overhead bins of the airplanes and haven't had a chance to use it now for a long time. But uh, while there in that little shop, there was a young man who asked me, well, is the monk's life very hard? And I smiled a little, and I, and I asked him, is life hard? And he thought just a moment, and he said, yes. So I said, all right then. <laughs> life is hard. Monk's life, householder's life, every life, life can be very hard. And right now, the, the COVID pandemic seems to have just thrown life on its head, the whole world on its head. And it's exposed these gaps in society that were already there. It's exposed them and, and worsened them, the gap between those who have and those who have not. And uh, many have lost loved ones, have lost jobs, have lost homes. It's kind of overwhelming. It's really kind of overwhelming. And then on top of that, we have the stresses of climate change and the disharmony in the political sphere and social unrest, injustice in society. And if that weren't bad enough, let's add some wildfires into the mix. So now there's, there's huge fires raging and we can't breathe. So many are asking, why? Why would God do this to us? Why isn't God protecting us? And some people even losing their faith. That if, if there is a God, there, there, this we wouldn't. Why would God inflict this stuff on us? So it's a good question. Uh, though this is not really our topic for today, but I think we can just touch on this. This is this this is the age-old question of the problem of evil. If there is a just and merciful God who is all-powerful, then why is there so much suffering? Why is life so hard? And uh, there are a number of. Uh, approaches to this problem. First of all, the Vedantic approach, the scientific Vedantist will say, hey, this is not a spiritual matter, this is a physical matter, it's a material matter. It's a material problem with material causes. There's too many people in the world living close to each other and living very close in contact with animals. And there's international travel and a lot of it going everywhere. So you mix all these together and you have a pandemic. But as we were talking about the, the, the difficulty of life, that life is hard, yes, that's simply the nature of this world. This world is a place of pain. It's a place of joy and a place of pain. The pleasure, I should say pleasure and pain, these dualities we find in this world. That's just the nature of this impermanent world. And the more we try to hold on to the impermanent, the harder it hurts when things are pulled out of our grasp the harder it hurts. 
Sometimes we call it maya. Swami Vivekananda would call it maya. Just the fact of the paradox that we see, that though it seems like we could imagine a perfect world, and we could imagine that everyone could just be nice to each other and loving, we can imagine it, and yet we find it's impossible. Even we ourselves can't be nice to everybody all the time. <laughs> and yet we expect everybody else to be nice. So this is maya. We feel that we will live forever. People, yes, death is there. Everyone else is going to die. But me, am I going to die? We put that out of our mind. This is called maya. Now, there are also approaches that just explain it away. They say, well, actually, it looks bad, but it's actually good. God knows. God, God always does the right thing. And it's for our good. This is hard to swallow. It's a very unsatisfying explanation. And uh, it's, I think most people don't really appreciate this This. Uh, this kind of, it's, this is explaining it away, actually, uh, the problem of evil. And uh, the Hindu and the Buddhists come up and say, well, actually, it's not God's will, it's your own karma. It's karma which causes us to suffer. And it's more satisfying, it's intellectually satisfying, it, it, uh, and we generally accept it. And yet, when we see the vast scale of suffering going on, not only now, but throughout history, when we see millions of people dying in a pandemic, when we see millions of people dying in wars, is it their, bad, is it their karma, each and every one of them? It's hard to swallow. So Sri Ramakrishna says, and this of course is the approach for those with strong faith, I don't know and I don't want to know. I don't care to know. He, he used to say, is it possible to understand God's actions and his motive? He creates, he preserves, and he destroys. Can we ever understand why he destroys? I say to the Divine Mother, Oh Mother, I don't need to understand. Please give me love for thy lotus feet. That's what we need is love. We don't need to understand. The aim of human life, he says, is to attain devotion. As for other things, the mother knows best. I have come to the garden to eat mangoes. What is the use of my knowing how many trees and how many leaves and how many mangoes are hanging on the, on the branches? I only eat the mangoes. So this idea that actually for the devotee, for the sincere seeker, we can't really understand and we don't need to understand. What we need is to make progress in spiritual life, develop love for God, start to find God shining everywhere. And he would say, uh, our minds are limited. Can a one seer pot, a seer is a, a measure of volume, I guess we can say, can a one gallon pot hold 10 gallons of milk? No, of course not. And in the same way, our small minds cannot comprehend the infinity of the divine. We, cannot, we simply cannot comprehend it. So this is Sri Ramakrishna's approach. One of his approaches, he has several different tacts, tacts that he takes. Uh, this idea that uh, the world is actually a play, a lila. It's the divine Leela, Krishna's Leela or Kali's Leela, Divine Mother's Leela, a play. And why is there evil then? Well, as Sri Ramakrishna would say, that is his will, his play. In his Maya, there exists ignorance as well as knowledge. Darkness is needed too. It reveals all the more the glory of the light. And here's an interesting uh, suggestion he makes. He says, why uh, has God created? There is no doubt that anger and lust and greed are evils. Why then has God created them? In order to create saints. <laughs> yes, we are called to be saints. That's uh, at least one explanation Sri Ramakrishna gives. Why is there so much difficulty in life? Because if everything were easy, we wouldn't make any progress in spiritual life. We are called to be saints. We are called to overcome our anger, our lust, and our greed, and to forbear in this difficult life, and to focus our mind completely on the divine and become saints. We are all called to become saints. And then with, uh, of course, with Hari, the young Hari who became uh, Swami Turiyananda, we can object strenuously to Sri Ramakrishna. But sir, 
this play of God, it may be play to God, but we're dying here, it's, it's our death. And Sri Ramakrishna smiles at us and he says, please tell me who you are. Please tell me who you are. God alone has become all this, Maya, the universe, living beings and the 24 cosmic principles. As the snake I bite and as the charmer I cure. It is God who's creating the suffering and it is also God who is suffering. How can we understand? So this idea that when we attain to realization, when we attain true love of God, then we see that God has become everything. And then, of course, the death is a meaningless. It's just a change of garment. So in, from that level, that's his, we can say, his most immature opinion, that all is God, everything is divine, and it is simply this world of suffering is actually just the play of the Divine Mother. Mother playing with herself, as it were, all different aspects of the Mother playing with herself. So what does it mean for us, this kind of lofty vision? Does it mean that we, that we just ignore everything then, ignore all the misery and suffering in the world and meditate and pray? It might mean that for some very rare and unusual seekers who can put their whole mind on the divine. But even Sri Ramakrishna didn't do that. When he went on pilgrimage with Mathurnath to uh, Varanasi, they stopped in Vaidyanath and they found a village full of starving people. And Sri Ramakrishna said, feed these people. He couldn't bear to see it. And Mathurna said, it'll be costly. I'm already spending a lot of money on this pilgrimage. No, I don't want to feed them. Sri Ramakrishna left the party. He went to the villagers, sat with them and said, I'm not leaving until you feed them and provide them with fresh new clothing. Moreover, it, this was not, we can say, a, a philanthropy in the ordinary sense. This was true philanthropy, which means love of humanity. Why? Because he saw the divine shining in every human heart. He saw every being as a manifestation of God. So, yes, he did strive. He stro- when he, where he saw ignorance, he strove to remove it. Where he saw suffering, he strove to... How much he prayed for his own disciples who were in trouble. How much he prayed when Keshab was sick that mother shouldn't take him away. Hmm? So he prayed. And he treated all equally with the eye of equality. When uh, rich visitors came or poor visitors came, they were equal in his sight. Uh, he even was on familiar terms with the local prostitute and shocked the, the aristocratic uh, women of Calcutta who came and found him chatting with the prostitute. He saw the Divine Mother shining in all. And let us not forget to eat the mangoes. Look for the mangoes and eat the mangoes. Amidst all the uncertainty, amidst all the fear, we hold on to the divine. Remember that who we are cannot be injured, cannot be killed, cannot die. Our true self is immortal. And we share the mangoes with others. We share the mangoes. Now, uh, this is uh, September 13, 2020, we're, we're talking, and just two days ago was September 11th, 9-11, which is burned into, some of you are kind of too young to really remember 9-11, but anyone over 30 can remember probably very clearly 9-11. What an upheaval, a real turning point, an, uh, another overturning of the world on its head with the disaster that happened uh, sending the country into economic turmoil and getting the country involved in several wars. Uh, almost 3,000 deaths on the day. And uh, if you count all the people that died in the wars that followed, we're coming up on close to half a million people who, who died, all coming from 9-11. So we'll remember it for a long time. But um, something interesting about September 11th and the number 108, which is considered a sacred number in Hinduism, and nobody really knows why exactly. People have different opinions and different theories about it, but 
count back 108 years of September 11th, and we come to September 11, 1893. What happened on that day? Yes. That was the day Swami Vivekananda stepped on the world stage at the Parliament of Religions and began to deliver his world-transforming message. Is it coincidence? Who can say? Who can say? But it's a, <laughs> it's a beautiful uh, uh, harmony of days. And I'm sure that 500 years from now, September 11 will still be remembered and still be honored, not for September 11, 2001, but for September 11, 1893, the first day in modern history when uh, members of different religions got together and decided to talk to each other and learn from each other. And that extremely powerful message of Swami Vivekananda. Now, I was a little curious about the state of things and the state of the country and the state of the world in 1893. And now with Google, it's easy to research these things. Turns out that there was a major economic crisis in 1893. They called it the Panic of 1893. Now, there were a number of financial panics in US history. 1873, 93, 1907, 1930, two in 1931, and one in 1933. Those were the major nationwide panics, which usually involved banks uh, getting, everybody running to the bank to withdraw their money, and the bank folding, and, every, and those who didn't get there soon enough losing their money, and all of that. These are the panics. Uh, nowhere in Swami Vivekananda's teachings do we find any mention of it? I had no idea because I was reading, I've been reading Swamiji, but haven't been reading the 1893 newspapers. <laughs> Why would I do that? <laughs> but uh, it was, it, it, it's been called, it was called a four month spasm of financial hysteria, followed by the worst depression to date in history. Uh, after the, the, the Great Depression of 1930 was, was the, became the worst, but until then, this was the worst depression in US history. And the panic itself was from May to August of 1893. Swami Vivekananda arrived in July, July 30. And there are various causes and op opinions about what the cause, causes were, international and national causes like a big financial institution of London defaulting on a huge debt. And that had been collateralized by heavy investment in Argentina. And then they had to borrow from a bank in France. And the bank in France had to borrow from a bank in Russia. And so we see already everything was interconnected. And the whole thing came crashing down like a house of cards. So uh, over 500 banks failed in this country. And if a bank fails, there was no insurance, no FDIC yet. So if the bank fails, you're just out of luck. You're just broke. Uh, 15,000 companies failed. In some states, unemployment up to 25% or more. So it was bad. Widespread homelessness, hunger, no food stamps at the, in those days. It was just church groups basically coming together and feeding the hungry. So one of the big issues was silver versus gold, one of the big political issues. And in those days, too, there were the Democrats and the Republicans. They were already there, and they were fighting. And the Silverites supported silver, and the, and the, uh, the others supported gold. And uh, this is the only, only time we find Swamiji even hinting at all the turmoil going on was when he mentioned this silver and gold. And he mentions it in this way. He is comparing uh, the Indian, the people, the common people, the, the workers, the simple villagers in India, and those in America. And he, he mentions, I have talked with your laborers, your farmers, and I find that in politics they are all posted. They are either Democrat or Republican. Sound familiar? <laughs> and they know whether they prefer free silver or a gold standard. But you talk to them of religion, they don't know. They attended such and such a church, but they don't know what it believes. They just pay their pew rent, and that's all they know about it or about God. And then he compares the villager in India. Now, when we come to India, if you ask one of our plowmen, do you know anything about politics? He will reply, what is that? He does not understand the socialistic movements, the relation between capital and labor, and all that. He has never heard of such things in his life. He works hard and earns his bread. But you ask, what is your religion? He replies, look here, my friend. 
I have marked it on my forehead. And he can give you a good hint or two on questions of religion. So this crisis, this financial panic of 1893, it led to widespread strikes, workers' strikes, violent strikes, as underpaid and exploited workers found their wages cut still further. They're already exploited by the big industrialists, the robber barons of the late 19th century, and then their wages are getting cut more. So they struck, the most famous was the Pullman strike in which uh, 50,000 miles of railways were blocked. It pretty much shut the whole railway system west of the Mississippi down. And uh, the, the movements became violent and President Grover Cleveland called in 5,000 federal troops to Chicago. Sound familiar? <laughs> A president calling in federal troops over the objections of Governor Altgeld of those days. Yes, history repeats itself. So it's remarkable that at the Parliament of Religions, which was in Chicago. Of course, this happened in 1894, the, the federal troops. But uh, neither at the Parliament of Religions nor in Swami Vivekananda's classes or teachings does he ever mention this collapse or the social unrest, the widespread poverty and human suffering that resulted. He stayed on message. Unlike most of the political leaders of today, he stayed stayed on message. And he completely eschewed politics. He completely, he felt it would be a waste of energy to get involved in social or political reform. Saying, and this is how he explained it, social ills and evil customs are a sort of disease in the social body. A disease in the social body. What's the remedy? If that body is nourished by education and food, those evil customs will disappear by themselves. So that's why he envisioned the aim of the monastic order and the Vedanta movement was to nourish the social body where needed with food and education and foremost with spirituality, the teachings of Vedanta. About politics he said further, God and truth are the only politics in the world. Everything else is trash. Okay. So Swamiji stayed on message. And now I propose we can, let's have a look at what that message was, particularly as he presented it at the Parliament of Religions. Starting with that, that uh, amazing and very powerful blessing, really, that he delivered on the opening day of the Parliament of Religions. Now, the Parliament of Religions, I think most of us know it, was part of the World's Fair of Chicago, which was officially called the Columbian Expedition, uh, the Columbian Exposition, um, which was celebrating, uh, celebrating, if that's something to be celebrated, the 400 years after Columbus uh, so-called discovered the uh, America bringing, of course, slavery, genocide, and disease from Europe. Uh, and it was to showcase human progress. And it was a big deal. It went from the 1st of May to the 30th of October, and there was a little bit of everything imaginable, from farm produce and agriculture and, and to uh, modern industry, electric lights. Uh, there was, it covered 600 acres, nearly 200 buildings, most of them temporary, and most of them burned down afterwards. Canals and lagoons were built, 46 nations participated, nearly 26 million visitors. Keep in mind, the US population at that time was 63 million, 26 million visitors to the World's Fair. And the, on the biggest day, there were over 700,000 people. Uh, the first Ferris wheel was erected there. Henry Ford saw an internal combustion engine and got the idea for a horseless carriage. It was really very influential. And there were a number of congresses, a number of uh, gatherings for discussing various issues in various fields of science, history, literature, women's rights, medicine, and all of these. And the most memorable today was this Congress of Religions or Parliament of Religions. It was a lot of planning, two and a half years of planning, 10,000 letters sent out, word came to India, Swami Vivekananda heard about it. Uh, he got really divine guidance to come. 
had divine guidance to come. His disciples in Madras and the Raja of Ketri raised funds to send him. That's another story. But uh, uh, the organizer, the, the primary organizer of the parliament, Charles Bonney, was an attorney. And he genuinely had liberal ideas and genuinely sought for the harmony of religions. It wasn't just Vivekananda who brought this message. It was already uh, in the current, as it were. And uh, however, uh, many of the participants and even some of the organizers had uh, less noble motives. The idea was all the religions will be displayed and Christianity will be so clearly and obviously the, the superior religion that everyone will accept Christianity and all the others will have to be rejected. So that was the, uh, the, <laughs> the motive of some. And Vivekananda even mentions that. He says, he calls it uh, that the Parliament of Religions seemed to me was intended for a heathen show before the world. But it turns out that the heathens had the upper hand and made it a Christian show all around. <laughs> so, um, Let's go to September 11, 1893. Just imagine this hall, it's, got, it's filled with chairs and there are two levels, a balcony and a, a floor, uh, maybe 2,000 below and another 1,000 above and then space for another 1,000 standing room. And this event had been widely publicized so it was packed and hot, I'm sure it was hot and the only, the only air conditioning was this, <laughs> the hand fan. Right? So you'd see, you probably, the whole place would have been a flutter with, with uh, and in those days, everyone had their little pocket hand fan, they would take it out, right? So, um, and what a gathering of diverse men and women on that platform. Uh, from America, numerous countries of Europe, including Greece and Russia, Africa, Japan, China, India, and New Zealand. And like a panoply of colors, of robes, of hairstyles, of beards, of hats, of turbans, and a lot of pomp. 59 men and women seated on that platform. And there was one young monk dressed in golden robes who attracted the attention of the eyes of so many people there. Just 30 years old, he had never speaking, spoken in public before more than a handful of people. Just 30 years old. And yet, we feel that he was like an unsheathed sword, blazing with the fire of spirituality and truth. So there were three addresses of welcome delivered by the organizers, and then there were 22 responses from delegates. Swamiji was number 18. He was down near the end. He was so nervous, he hadn't prepared a talk. He found that the others had all prepared talks and he hadn't prepared anything. So he sat there nervous. He, he just couldn't bring himself to speak. He was asked a couple of times, are you come and, and so finally in the afternoon, uh, encouraged by one of the other delegates, he finally bowed up, came up. He bowed down mentally to Devi Saraswati and he delivered his talk. And uh, can we imagine the power flowing through him, the power that would bring a whole room of 4,000 people to their feet and applauding for two minutes on his opening words, Sisters and Brothers of America. Later, Mrs. S.K. Blodgett, with whom Swamiji would end up staying here in Los Angeles, she was at the Parliament and she remembered. I was at the Parliament of Religions in Chicago in 1893. When that young man got up and said, Sisters and Brothers of America, 4,000 people rose to their feet as a tribute to something they knew not what. When it was over, I saw scores of women walking over the benches to get near him. And I said to myself, well, my lad, if you can resist that onslaught, you are indeed a god. <laughs> and he could, he could digest it. He could digest the fame. He could digest the adulation. Perhaps the one, the, the one soul in this world who could digest such, such uh, honor and adulation. So let's 
uh, read a few of those, those thrilling passages from that opening day. Uh, they were punctuated by applause, so it might have taken a little bit longer than it will take me to read these, but probably not much longer. It was short, but it was uh, full of power and blessing. He began with gratitude. It fills my jo- heart. It fills my heart with joy unspeakable to rise in response to the warm and cordial welcome which you have given us. I thank you in the name of the most ancient order of monks in the world. I thank you in the name of the mother of religions. And I thank you in the name of the millions and millions of Hindu people of all classes and sects. So he begins with this expression of gratitude, mentioning the mother of religions, which is really something that he expanded on later this idea that Vedanta is really the philosophy which, through which we can understand all religions. And then, I am proud to belong to a religion which has taught the world both tolerance and universal acceptance. We, belo- we believe not only in universal toleration, but we accept all religions as true. I am proud to belong to a nation which has sheltered the persecuted and the refugees of all religions and all nations of the earth. This pride, this pride in the all-accepting nature of of his religious tradition. And that's a beautiful, yes, in in, uh, those days, Hindus were made to feel ashamed of their religion by the British rulers. And yet, he is proclaiming here, yes, I'm proud. Look at the glory of this ancient spiritual tradition of India and this great pride to be a part of it. And we, too, can feel proud. If we must feel proud about something, let us feel proud that we are associated with this glorious lineage, which is so liberal and so open-minded and so broad, and yet deeper than the deepest ocean, the deepest tradition of finding the divine in every heart and in everything. Then he introduces the topic which is one of the keynotes of Sri Ramakrishna's teaching and his own teaching, the topic of harmony. I will quote to you, brethren, a few lines from a hymn which I remember to have repeated from my earliest boyhood, which is every day repeated by millions of human beings. As the different streams having their sources in different places all mingle their water in the sea, so, O Lord, the different paths which men take through different tendencies, various though they appear, crooked or straight, all lead to thee. This is from the Shiva Mahimna Stotram, famous hymn of Shiva and to, to Shiva. And this idea that, yes, there are so many religions, but what are religions? They are but paths. They are but paths to one goal. This goal, the infinite the divine, Sri Ramakrishna's, one of his fundamental teachings, introduced right here. And he continues with that, that theme. The present convention, which is one of the most august assemblies ever held, is in itself a vindication, a declaration to the world of the wonderful doctrine preached in the Gita. Whosoever comes to me, through whatsoever form, I reach him. All are struggling through paths which in the end lead to me. And of course, the, the famous verse from the Gita, 4.11. Ye yatha maam prapadyante tamstataiva bhajamyaham mama vardmanu vartante manushyaf partha sarvashah Yes, we do reach the divine through whatever path we take, if we take it sincerely. This is, uh, and he closes, he closes the, his, his blessing with this call to leave behind fanaticism. Sectarianism, bigotry, and its horrible descendant fanaticism have long possessed this beautiful earth. They have filled the earth with violence, drenched it often and often with human blood, destroyed civilization and sent whole nations to despair. 
Had it not been for these horrible demons, human society would be far more advanced than it is now. But their time is come. And I fervently hope that the bell that tolled this morning in honor of this convention may be the death knell to all fanaticism, to all persecutions with the sword or with the pen, and to all uncharitable feelings between persons wending their way to the same goal. The talk closed to thundering applause, and shortly after there, was, there were uh, four more presenters, and then the, the event closed for the day, and throngs of women apparently were crawling over the benches to, <laughs> to get to him. <laughs> But yes, because what a, what a beautiful message, what an important message, and we would lament that today, 127 years later, we still haven't got it. Bigotry and fanaticism are still torturing us. Uh, but I hope and I think that these are it, the death throes of fanaticism, the death throes of bigotry. In the death throes, one becomes particularly violent. They're on their way out. They're on their way out. It will be worth, it'll be worth our while, I think, to look at one more offering of Swami Vivekananda at the Parliament of Religions. He actually spoke a total of 12 times. He was extremely popular. The newspapers verify this. He was often kept for the end. The, there would be some, some long, uh, long, boring discussions with very dry pundits discussing arcane details of their religions, and the, the the organizers, the, the president of that meeting would see that people are gets do nodding off or they're leaving and so he would say, oh, Swami Vivekananda will address the, the uh, gathering at the end. And that would keep people in their seats to hear him speak. Uh, and uh, um, so he spoke 12 times, but only six were noted down even in part. Uh, so we, we have lost some of his offerings. But September 19, he delivered a formal paper uh, which I, I believe he actually wrote down either before or after, and it's published in the record of the of the Parliament and of course in the complete works of Vivekananda, and this is his paper on Hinduism. It's a tremendous document. If we think that well, Swamiji he was only thirty years old, and did he have his message already? Did he already know what his message was? Reading, read this. You'll see. Yes, it's all there in this mess in this initial uh, presentation. Of course, f afterwards he would develop all these ideas much uh, in, into a, a, an amazing uh, philosophical, uh, you can say edifice or something, but um, here he sets forth in simple language the essence of Vedanta of what is called Hinduism. And we hear echoes of Sri Ramakrishna, of, of Swami Vivekananda's master, and uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful how he, do, he introduces the themes here, which he will deal with for the rest of his life. Niverita puts it this way, not, that it was not he who was speaking. It was the religious consciousness of India that spoke through him in this, in this paper on Hinduism. And of course, uh, because he was so popular, the Hall of Columbus was packed they could not accommodate all who wanted to enter and, and hear him. Uh, now, it's interesting that before he delivered this amazing uh, declaration, as it were, he fired off a, a, uh, rem some remarks about the missionaries. And we get a glimpse of how Swami, this also, uh, you could say, hinted at the kind of battles that he would have to face uh, against the missionaries, many of whom were working in India and who were spreading all kinds of lies about, about India and Hindus and how the Hindu mothers would throw their babies to the crocodiles and whatnot. And of course, Swamiji would, uh, something, once he was asked, uh, is it true, Swamiji, that uh, the Hindu mothers throw their babies to the crocodiles? And he said, oh, yes. My mother threw me too, but they didn't want me. I was too, I was, uh, too bitter tasting. <laughs> So uh, that's how he, he had to deal with this kind of ignorance and bigotry. So not that he would never speak out against bigotry when, when the time came. So he said, let me read this, it's, it's uh, powerful. And the boldness here, a, a man from India in a, among a sea of white faces, uh, when bigotry was still so strong and all Christians practically, 
We who have come from the East have sat here day after day and have been told in a patronizing way that we ought to accept Christianity because Christian nations are the most prosperous. We look about us and we see England, the most prosperous nation in the world, with her foot on the neck of 250 million Asiatics. We look back into history and see that the prosperity of Christian Europe began with Spain. Spain's prosperity began with the invasion of Mexico. Christianity wins its prosperity by cutting the throats of its fellow men. At such a price, the Hindu will not have prosperity. Can you feel that power even today? Calling out, that, you know, this kind of hypocrisy. He couldn't bear hypocrisy. Yes, Christianity is also true. It is also a way to the God. But if you're going to use Christianity and say it makes you prosperous and cut the throats of your fellow men, no, he's going to call it out. So let me take a breath and calm down after that. (laughs) (laughs) Because then he switches gears completely and he goes into this remarkable (laughs) document, uh, this remarkable presentation of his own tradition. You know, he said... I do not love religion. I've become one with it. You cannot love something you have become one with. Uh, so he has, he has become one with Vedanta. So he, it's, it's his uh, more than love. So let me turn to this key passage, which he, fairly early in the talk, he introduces this idea. Here, I, of, of asking, who are we? Here I stand, and if I shut my eyes, and try to conceive my existence. I, I, I. What is the idea before me? The idea of a body. Am I then nothing but a combination of material substances? The Vedas declare, no, I am a spirit living in a body. I am not the body. The body will die, but I shall not die. He quotes the famous verse from the Gita. I'm not sure if he chanted it. I like to think that he did because he often would chant. The Hindu believes that he is a spirit. Him the sword cannot pierce. Him the fire cannot burn. Him the water cannot melt. Him the air cannot dry. In its very essence, the soul is free, unbounded, holy, pure, and perfect. But somehow or other, it finds itself tied down to matter and thinks of itself as matter. So he starts right here with the, 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 the fundamental question, who are we actually? This is the fundamental question that, that Vedanta begins with. Not what is God, where is God? Actually, who am I is the first question to, to ask. And then naturally the question comes up, well, why then do we, we uh, think of ourselves as matter if we are spirit? The, the age-old question, and Swamiji asks it in this, in this talk, he says, why this universe? Why am I here? If I am spirit, why do I think I am perishable body? He says, why should the free, perfect, and pure being be thus under the thraldom of matter is the next question. How can the perfect soul be deluded into the belief that it is imperfect? It's a really good question. How can the perfect become the quasi-perfect? How can the pure, the absolute change even a microscopic particle of its nature? But the Hindu is sincere. He does not want to take shelter under sophistry. He is brave enough to face the question in a manly fashion. And his answer is, I do not know. (laughs) I do not know how the perfect being, the soul, came to think of itself as imperfect, as joined to and conditioned by matter. How wonderful. And the way he puts it is so humorous, in a sense, and yet so honest and sincere. Yes, that's the, that's the best answer. We don't know. We call it maya. We call it play. Basically, we don't know. And yet, we can know the truth. 
And then here comes the most powerful passage of, the, of uh, this paper, which stunned his audience. As I said, mostly Christian, and steeped in this idea of the fall of man and the fact that we are born sinners and our nature is, we are sinners in our true nature. So that's why this, this passage, and you know what's coming, of course. First, he explains the idea of karma and how cause and effect is what brings us to where we are, what our previous actions. And then he asks this powerful question. Is man a tiny boat in a tempest, raised one moment on the foamy crest of a billow and dashed down into a chasm, the next rolling to and fro at the mercy of good and bad actions, a powerless, helpless wreck in an ever-raging, ever-rushing, uncompromising current of cause and effect, a little moth placed under the wheel of causation which rolls on crushing everything in its way and waits not for the widow's tears or the orphan's cry. The heart sinks at the idea, yet this is the law of nature. Is there no hope? Is there no escape? Was the cry that went up from the bottom of the heart of despair. It reached the throne of mercy, and words of hope and consolation came down and inspired a Vedic sage. And he stood up before the world, and in trumpet voice proclaimed the glad tidings. Hear, ye children of immortal bliss, even ye that reside in higher spheres. I have found the ancient one who is beyond all darkness, all delusion. Knowing him alone, you shall be saved from death over again. Children of immortal bliss. What a sweet, what a hopeful name. Allow me to call you, brethren, by that sweet name. Heirs of immortal bliss. Yea, the Hindu refuses to call you sinners. Ye are children of God, the sharers of immortal bliss, holy and perfect beings. Ye divinities on earth. Sinners, it is a sin to call a man so. It is a standing libel on human nature. Come up, O lions, and shake off the delusion that you are sheep. You are souls immortal, spirits free, blessed and eternal. Ye are not matter, ye are not bodies. Matter is your servant, not you, the servant of matter. Of course, that uh, line of the Vedic sage is from the Shvetashvatara Upanishad. This passage shook the assembly to its core. William Ernest Hawking, the well-known uh, philosopher, later a friend of Vedanta, said, he was, was there and he, he remembers, I can still hear the ring of his voice and feel the silence of the crowd, almost as if shocked. I hear his emphatic rebuke, call men sinners? It is a sin to call men sinners. Through the silence, I felt something like a gasp running through the hall as the audience waited for the affirmation which must follow this blow. What I could feel and understand was that this man was speaking from what he knew, not from what he had been told. So it is here on this point, on the divinity of the soul, on the divinity of humankind that Swami Vivekananda's teachings come to rest. Harmony of religions, service of humanity as worship of the divine, even the oneness of existence, they all proceed from this fundamental axiom which he lays out with such power and beauty and poetry on this September 19, 1893. We don't have time to go into all the, the other teachings he gives in this, in this powerful uh, presentation. But he d let me just touch on a couple of them. He also affirms that religion is proved by realization. Religion is not in faith or in doctrines, it is in realization. The Hindu, he says, the Hindu does not want to live upon words and theories. If there is a soul in him which is not matter, if there is an all-merciful universal soul, he will go to him direct. 
He must see him, and that alone can destroy all doubts. So the best proof a Hindu sage gives about the soul, about God, is, I have seen the soul, I have seen God. The Hindu religion does not consist in struggles and attempts to believe a certain doctrine or dogma, but in realizing, not in believing, but in being and becoming. And then he goes on to, to give, uh, in just a, do- a dozen words, a definition of Vedanta, of religion. Thus, the whole object of their system is by constant struggle to become perfect, to become divine, to reach God and see God. And this reaching God, seeing God, becoming perfect even as the Father in heaven is perfect, constitutes the religion of the Hindus. There it is. In a nutshell, (laughs) he gives a number of nutshells of what is Vedanta, what is Hinduism, what is religion. This is one of the the very beautiful and powerful ones. The whole object is to become divine, to realize our divinity through the struggles. This This constitutes the religion. He goes on in the paper to establish the oneness of existence, to, to talk about non-duality, the ultimate non-duality of reality, our true nature as infinite existence, consciousness, and bliss. He touches on reincarnation. He touches on the goal of mukti, freedom, liberation. He talks on devotion, on bhakti, quoting Sri Chaitanya. He talks about polytheism, so-called polytheism, and idol worship, and debunks it and explains it. Uh, and he ends with another call to harmony. We can't, we, we, it's worth going through this paper carefully and point by point. Today is just like a taste <laughs> to whet our appetite, I hope. He ends with a beautiful call to harmony. If there is ever to be a universal religion, he says, and universal religion in those days was the term meant uh, Christianity is the universal religion, and it means everybody will become Christian eventually. And the Muslims say, no, Islam is the universal religion. Everyone will become Muslim eventually, then it'll be the universal religion. Listen to what Swamiji says. If there is ever to be a universal religion, it must be one which will have no location in place or time, which will be infinite like the God it will preach, and whose sun will shine upon the followers of Krishna and of Christ, on saints and sinners alike, which will not be Brahminic or Buddhistic, Christian or Mohammedan, but the sum total of all these, and still have infinite space for development, which in its Catholicity will embrace in its infinite arms and formulate a place for every human being. It will be a religion which will have no place for persecution or intolerance, which will recognize divinity in every man and woman, and whose whole scope, whose whole force, will be centered in aiding humanity to realize its divine nature. So this Parliament of Religions was the springboard for Swami Vivekananda to launch his uh, his mission, which his mission, which was really just to deliver his message, to, as he put it, put in a lever for the good of humanity, which no power can drive back. It's wonderful to contemplate on this uh, this glorious beginning to his, to his uh, delivery of his message, which then went on f- uh, f- until 1902 only. Just think, 1893 to 1902, nine years. In nine years, what he accomplished, what tremendous power flowed through him. Now, we're really almost out of time. And uh, those of you who are here are my captive audience. Those of you who are watching, you can now turn off your computer if you want or your device because I'm going to go on for a few more minutes because I want to discuss one more very relevant incident. And this is uh, the pandemic part of our topic today. We've discussed panic and we've discussed parliament but we haven't discussed pandemic too much. And uh, bubonic plague became a world pandemic in the 1890s. And it came from China. And it entered India in 1896. And there are many parallels with 2020. Uh, The the distancing, uh, the... the, mm, 
quarantines, the widespread deaths, the horrible uh, and the, the um, discrimination against those who were sick and the rumors flying and all of that. The bacterium which causes plague, bubonic plague, was only discovered in 1894. Yersinia pestis, it's called. And this is the bacteria which causes bubonic plague. And how it was transmitted from, to, was not discovered until 1898. It's transmitted primarily by the bites of fleas between mammals. And primarily rodents carry the, the, uh, the bacterium. And then fleas bite the rodents. And if fleas bite people, then people get this bubonic plague. And so this, even when uh, in early 1898, it was not yet known how it transmits. So this social distancing that we're doing today, that it's not actually necessary in the case of bubonic plague. What's necessary is killing fleas and then reducing the rodent population. But don't kill the rodents first, because then the fleas will leave the rodents and look for somewhere else, and they'll find humans. So it's a, <laughs> it was a, a, comp a very a tragic disease and we forget now in this pandemic that there were there have been dozens of pandemics and horrible diseases uh, cholera smallpox bubonic plague bubonic plague 50 million in the black death of europe in the 14th century so it, it made a resurgence and between 1896 and 1921 an estimated 12 million people in india perished from bubonic plague so it's it's hard to get our minds around such numbers. So there was panic in Calcutta, obviously, and those who could afford it fled the city, and the government authorities were vaccinating people, but the vaccine was not all that effective, and people were suspicious, and some people suspected that actually the vaccine was causing the disease, and there was all, all kinds of unrest. And Swami Vivekananda was in, in Calcutta at the time, and uh, asked his monks to start serving the poor and the distressed. And the monks went into the city with brooms and uh, cleaning out the open sewers to clear out all the dirt and all the vermin and, and uh, went and started a clinic to nurse those who were infected with plague. And uh, he wrote a beautiful document he, and published a beautiful plague manifesto, it's called and distributed it to the public. And in this manifesto, it's just a page, he affirms that people of Calcutta, we have your back. We're ready to serve you. Don't be afraid. We are going to serve you, and that service will be nothing less than worship of God. And he calls again and again to be fearless. The cowards die a thousand deaths. Don't be, don't be afraid. Yes, we will have to die. If this is the time, then let us die, but don't be afraid. So he, he, and let me just uh, read a couple of passages from this. We humbly pray to you, please do not panic due to unfounded fear. Depend on God and think calmly of measures you can take or else join hands with those who are doing so. So it's a dual message. On the one hand, hold on to God. That's our refuge. That's our support. And do what they do, what, do take uh, action, follow what the doctors are saying, follow what the experts are saying, do those things. In other words, wear your mask. <laughs> he emphasized a healthy diet and healthy thinking, free of fear. Let me just read a couple of uh, the, the prescriptions he suggests. Always keep the house and its premises, clothes, bed, drain, etc., clean. Do not eat stale or spoiled food. Take fresh, nutritious food instead. A weak body is more susceptible to disease. Always keep the mind cheerful. Everyone will die at some point, but cowards suffer the pangs of death again and again, solely due to fear. Fear never leaves those who earn their living by unethical means or who cause harm to others. Today, therefore, when we are faced with the great fear of death, desist from all such behavior. And lastly, do not pay any heed to rumors. So these were some of the uh, prescriptions he suggested. And, and there was one more. Uh, during the epidemic, 
abstain from anger and from lust, even if you are householders. So he felt that uh, to keep the body strong, take nutritious food, don't get angry, avoid these strong emotions, and take refuge in God. Don't, don't, believe, don't believe all the rumors that are flying. And finally, the, at the very bottom of, the, of the, uh, this manifesto, in order to remove the fear of the epidemic, you should sing Nama Sankirtanam every evening and in every neighborhood. We do that here, the Ram Nam Sankirtan. We sing the names of Rama. Sing the name and glories of God. Get together and sing and uh, lift your minds above the strains and stresses and fear. So uh, just, I just felt like this is a time to remember what Swami Vivekananda counseled in a similar time of, of pandemic and difficulty. Uh, so maybe in some we can say, what, what can we take from this presentation today in this difficult time? Let us stand on the divinity of our own soul. Panics and pe- pandemics have come before. They will come again. But... The soul abides forever, beyond. Let us take the practical measures recommended by scientists and medical professionals. Let us, finally, let us serve. Let us take the hint from Swami Vivekananda and serve. Serve the suffering, the sick, the hungry, with our own hands if we can, with our pocketbooks if we can, and with our prayers and positive thoughts, which definitely we all can. All right, a couple of questions have come, one from Martha. Uh, Wow, Vivekananda's powerful statement about, about prosperity and exploitation. That said, I still wonder how we can help alleviate extreme poverty in India, or is that just not our bailiwick? There's extreme poverty not only in India, there's also extreme poverty in this country itself. Uh, And I think Swami Vivekananda would say, education, education, education. But we have, of course, in India, we are working to uh, serve the poorest of the poor. We do, uh, are doing disaster relief. So many of our centers are feeding people right now. And that's really, right now, that's perhaps the biggest need is feeding those who don't have enough to eat. They're, they can't work. Their jobs have dried up. Uh, so we're feeding people both cooked food and uncooked food uh, through uh, dozens and dozens of our centers in India. Um, if you want to participate in that, there's ways to uh, donate funds for that work. Uh, there's also ways to donate funds for feeding people here, in, in, right in here in Los Angeles and all over the country, as that need is growing. But ultimately, um, it's, a, it's a question of nourishing the social body. No? The poverty is actually a symptom of uh, a diseased social body, as Swami Vivekananda would put it, I think. And uh, as we begin to recognize, as more and more of us begin to recognize the divine shining within all of us, we will be less willing to tolerate poverty, less willing to tolerate the exploitation that leads to poverty, less willing to tolerate the injustices that poor people have to face. Another question, is the path of realizing universal religion subjective or collective? True, it's a a wonderful question, a wonderful thing to think of. Swami Vivekananda, in that talk, he doesn't say that there's definitely going to be a a universal religion. He says, if there ever is to be a universal religion. Uh, Though sometimes he argues that it already exists, only we just have to recognize it. Already there are so many, so this universal religion, we can say, yes, it exists already. It is here, only <laughs> most of us don't have eyes to see it. Those who have eyes to see it can, can go to the mosque and, and bow down to Allah with the Muslims and can go to the church and kneel before the crucifix with the Christians and can go to the temple of the Buddhist and uh, 
take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and can go and sit with the Hindu in the forest and meditate on the divine light shining within. Yes, we can do all of that. It's already here. But will all beings everywhere recognize it? It seems like a far cry, doesn't it? Let's see. <laughs> At the same time, Swami Vivekananda assures us, all will be liberated. Hmm? All, Sri Ramakrishna also assures us, all will be liberated in the end. There is no eternal damnation. So are there any other questions? There, we have a food drive, an annual food drive here at the, Swami, at the Vedanta Society, pointed out by Anuradha. Thank you. So I think I'll close now with a chant, and I thank you for uh, showing up and uh, support, supporting me and giving me the encouragement to deliver this talk. <clears throat> Om Asatoma Sadgamaya Tamasoma Jyotirgamaya Mrityorma Mritangamaya Aviravirma Edhi Rudrayate Dakshinamukham Tenamam Pahinityam Om Shanti 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 From the unreal, lead us to the real. From darkness, lead us unto light. From death, lead us to immortality. Reach us through and through ourselves, and evermore protect us from ignorance by thy sweet, compassionate face by thy sweet, compassionate face. Om, peace, peace, peace. Thank you, Jaima. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.